When we were in Scotland in the middle 1970s, Florence and I got a, um, rented a TV. There were only three television cha uh, channels in those days, two BBC channels and one ITV channel. And uh, every night at dinner time, we watched the BBC's um, sort of variety news magazine show and sort of caught up on our British culture that way. And one night, they were doing a feature on a Welsh boxer. And uh, the camera was uh, showing him, uh, obviously it was on a, on a uh, truck or a car or something, and it was following him as he did his road work, you know, going, running, along the, running along the road. But in the background was Fight the Good Fight, uh, the hymn, Fight the Good Fight with All Your Might, uh, to the tune Deep Harmony, which is a much better setting. If you're looking for a new setting for Fight the Good Fight, Deep Harmony is a much better one. And uh, so here you, you're, you're uh, seeing this Welsh boxer doing his uh, practicing while hearing this hymn. And I'm thinking to myself, never in, on US television would you encounter anything, anything like that. Okay, we've surveyed the doctrine of covenant children and grace in the lines of generations and the fortunes of that biblical teaching in the history of the Reformed faith. We've noted in passing that the doctrine is meant to animate Christian parents in their calling as disciples of their children. What good is any biblical doctrine if it can't be put to use? We said that the calling of parents for the sake of their children is not that of evangelists, but disciplers, nurturers of their children's faith. So the final question we want to answer is what is that nurture? How is it done? What are parents to do? Horace Bushnell was a very significant figure in American Christianity in the middle third of the 19th century. And he wrote a book, Christian Nurture, in which he dealt with the whole um, the whole uh, work of parents uh, in its sort of spiritual and psychological uh, dimensions. It was a classic. It went through a great many editions in its time. And interestingly, though Bushnell had a very defective doctrine of divine grace and salvation as alone by the working of God's power, and for that reason, and for a very poor doctrine of the atonement, uh, we would have expected um, solid 19th century Presbyterians to review the book very harshly. In fact, Charles Hodge, Henry Smith, a num uh, Lyman Atwood, a number of other prominent uh, Presbyterians, Princeton grads, all uh, reviewed the book very warmly and very favorably. Surprisingly so, because of Bushnell's defective theology. But they thought it was an antidote to what was being lost in their day, this notion that children are to be nurtured in the faith in the home, that they, we are not to wait for them to be converted, but are to build up their faith from the very beginning. It seems to me that in the Bible, nurture is three things. Um, 
And how those three things are worked out will depend, of course, on the individual parents, their own life experiences, the circumstances of their home and their times, and so on. But we can all take these three things and apply them uh, to our own situation. The first, obviously, is teaching. Psalm 78 is about that. We're going to teach our children the great deeds of the Lord. More famously, in Deuteronomy 6, we are told that we're going to be teaching our children when we are lying down, when we're sitting down, when we're standing up, and when we're walking in the way, which is a biblical way of saying we're going to be teaching our children all the time and in all manner of different ways. We'll be teaching them in a comprehensive, paradigmatic way. At some points, we'll be teaching them at other times by conversation in which they are raising issues and we're responding to them and so on. A teacher is a teacher all the time uh, who is a teacher in the home. The Lord's Great Commission. Remember, everything that is said to Christians in the Bible is said to Christians who are being raised in believing homes at the same time. And he says we are to make disciples of all nations, make disciples of our children, teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you. So we're going to be parents who are teaching our children the whole counsel of God. I suspect we all know this. We realize that uh, that is our responsibility. But um, next time you have a moment, look again at Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. If you remember the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters are cast in the form of a conversation between a father and his son. It could just as well be a mother and daughter, um, but in this particular case, it's a father and his son. And there are so many things to observe about that conversation, those nine chapters before you actually get to the Proverbs themselves, which begin in chapter 10, verse 1. It's warm. It's earnest. It's obviously heartfelt. The father is pleading with his son to gain wisdom and to live a wise life. You know what wisdom is. In the Bible, wisdom is not smarts, it's not learn, it's not learn, it's not, certainly not book learning. Um, the examples the Bible uses um, are things like the craftsman who built the tabernacle in the first place. God granted them chokmah, wisdom. Um, have you ever thought about this? A... Um, the David, if you've ever seen the David at the Academy in Florence, this most perfect statue of the human form, at one time was a block of marble, just a big block of marble. But Michelangelo could see in that block of marble the statue he was going to create. And with his hands and with his tools, it came out just the way he saw it. Phenomenal. If you've ever stood in front of that statue and said, how in the world did he do this? Or the Pieta in, the, in uh, St. Peter's in Rome. How in the world did he do this? At one time, that was just one big block of marble. That's wisdom. You see it, and out it comes here. 
Or in Proverbs chapter 30, the animals have wisdom. Um, ants are tiny little creatures, but there's no shortage of ants in the world. They make a success of life in their environment. Conies, if you travel to uh, Israel today as a tourist, go to some of the sites, you'll be bound to see conies. They're just little badger-like animals. They have no defenses. They ought to be uh, exterminated by now, but um, there's no shortage of conies. They are making a success of their environment. Well, that's what the Bible means by wisdom. It's the skill of navigating as a Christian in this world, of making the Christian life work. You see what a godly life is. You learn its profile in the word of God. You can imagine what a person who lived that way would be and would do. And then you bring the wise person is able to bring that into existence. That's what Proverbs is about. That's what the wisdom literature is about. And this father is pleading with his son to be this kind of a person. He's reminding him of the blessings that come to that kind of a life. And he's warning him of the troubles that are inevitably going to come when a, when a fool, who is the unwise uh, person, um, does what uh, he does. So his, his teaching is warm, and it's heartfelt, and it's earnest, and it's immensely practical. He talks about all the things that we would expect a father to talk about in a conversation with his son that takes place over years. He talks about peer pressure. He talks about a work ethic. He talks about sex three times in those nine chapters. It's the subject that gets the largest part of um, the father's attention. Um, so it's warm, it's earnest, it's practical. Uh, he's very, he is very straightforward about sexual temptation, how it comes, how it works, how much damage can be done to a life uh, when one stumbles in that dimension of life and so on. And it is relentless. He just keeps after it. Um, I think the picture is of somebody who never stops talking to his kids. He's in a perpetual conversation with his sons and his daughters. Um, and that, I think, is what the Bible is describing for us in a teaching parent. Somebody who is communicating the truth but doing so in a way that makes sense to a child, is persuasive to a, to a child, and is useful to a child. He can understand what he's being told and put it, um, put it immediately into practice. The second is discipline, and the Bible is also plain with that um, uh, emphasis. On more than one occasion, as you may remember, the Bible explains the spiritual loss of covenant children as a failure of discipline in their home. We have that with Hophni and Phinehas, uh, whose father, Eli, simply failed to correct his sons. We have it with Adonijah, who sought to, to wrest the kingdom from David before Solomon could uh, receive it. And 
in chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Kings, we're told that the reason for that is that David never said to Adonijah, what in the world are you doing? Uh, he never corrected his son. He never reproached his son. Um, Proverbs, of course, has a lot to say about uh, discipline, and we too often, I think, reduce this issue to the question of whether we're supposed to spank our kids. Um, I think we should, but the, but the amount of time in which that's appropriate is very small in a child's life. I remember very distinctly my last spanking. It was perfectly obvious that it didn't really hurt that much, and I was trying to I was trying to make my father think that it hurt more than it did so we could get past this and move on to something else. But it was obvious to him as it was to me that that was the last time he was going to do that uh, in my life. The fact that I can remember it um, is interesting, but it obviously means it, obviously means it happened relatively, uh, at a relatively young age. The larger point is our children need constant correction. They're bringing into their life a tendency to rebel. And they need to learn not to do that. They need to learn that there are consequences for doing that. And they need to learn that there is happiness on the other side of repentance. If there's anything a child needs to learn, it is that there will be happiness on the other side of repentance. Um, so in my view, and according to the Bible, I think, it is as much the way in which discipline is done as that it is done that um, is most important for its effect to be felt in a child's life. Isn't it interesting? The one thing the Apostle Paul tells fathers is don't discourage your children. Don't exasperate your children. Why would he say that to fathers, except for the fact that he was well aware that that is a typical place of failure on the part of fathers? They're angry. They're more concerned by the interruption of their life, by the misbehavior of their children, than they are in the correction of their children's heart and they're seeing to their children's repentance and happiness on the other side. I have many regrets thinking back over the, the raising of my children <clears throat> in that respect. So when the Apostle Paul tells us in general as Christians to speak the truth in love, he's telling us what uh, we are to do with our children when they are misbehaving. We need to speak the truth and we need to do it in love. And then the third dimension of nurture is example. With discipleship, as we practice it with adults, example always features largely in our understanding of what makes for effective discipleship. Somebody's got to be able to see the Christian life being lived in a holy way, in an effective way, in a happy way in order to believe that they might live that same life themselves. The Lord himself, Peter says, left us an example that we should follow in his steps. He not only taught us how to live, he showed us how to live. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul not only taught his churches, 
uh, how they were to live the Christian life. He showed them how to live uh, the Christian life. Now, we parents hear that, and we think, ouch, in the back of our hearts and minds, because it worries us that our, our children might live only the Christian life that they have seen us live. We know only too well how poorly, in many respects, we have lived our life before them. But that is our calling. And of course, you can correct your children's impression of your example by your own repentance and your own seeking of forgiveness uh, from your children. So, do you love the Lord? Is that obvious to your children? Does it come out in your speech? Um, is it demonstrated in the way you treat one another as husband and wife? The way you spend your time the way you spend your money? Do your children ever see you making decisions that represent a sacrifice, but decisions you're happy to make because it's the thing you believe the Lord would have you to do? Do they watch you do those sorts of things? How do they see you as, they, as the family is going to worship on the Lord's day, coming home from worship on the Lord's day? Is it obvious to them that this is really a very precious time in your life because it's a time with God's people before the Lord? How about your love for them? Fathers, I think it is now virtually agreed by everybody except people who have an ax to grind that the most constitutive relationship in human life is the relationship between a father and his daughters. No other relationship in life bears so profoundly on the outcome of a person's life as the relationship between a dad and his girls. I'm not saying that the other relationships are not immensely important, they obviously are. But if a young woman grows up in a home with a father who obviously loves her, adores her, thinks she walks on water, admires the things that she does, and says so, she's going to grow up a confident, self-aware, wise young woman capable of making intelligent decisions with respect to the men in her life as an adult. How many times have we seen that when there is not that kind of relationship in the home, the young woman starts looking for what she never got from her dad in all the wrong places. Everybody can see it's going to end badly. And it does, time and time and time again. Does she hear you praise her? Does she know that you adore her and that you're proud of her? Does she know that because you tell her that? The way the Lord tells that uh, same thing to us and, in, and encourages us by doing so. How often are you angry in front of your children? Anger is an acid that eats away at all manner of relationships. We know that. And men, of course, are in a particular way uh, tempted to give way to anger. 
Does she believe, do, does he believe, your son, your daughter, that it's perfectly obvious that you actually mean what you say and what you sing when you're in the house of God? Is there happiness in your home? Is there laughter in your home? Is your home a happy place to be for your children? If you want to believe that God blesses his people, if you want your children to believe that happy are they whose God is the Lord, then obviously they need to see that in this Christian home, in this home that professes to be following Jesus Christ, that happiness is there for all to see and all to enjoy. If you want your children to be aspiring to go to heaven, they need to believe from their own experience that there's such a place and they need to want to be there. They've seen enough of heaven in their own home to want to be in the real place in due time. If you want an example of the Christian home, if you, want an if you want to read a few pages that are going to make you feel very, very um, um, inadequate as parents, but will also inspire you, read the early pages of John Payton's autobiography, where he describes the home in which he grew up, um, and describes especially his father, who was such an immensely important influence in his life. He became a missionary in some significant part because his father, who was just a Scottish crofter, small farmer, uh, not a minister of any kind, but he was a man who loved his Bible, and he was always praying for the conversion and the salvation of the lost. In fact, in Peyton's young adulthood, he had gone to Glasgow to, um, to seminary, in effect, and at that time, his denomination, which was the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland, had decided they needed to send a missionary to the South Sea Islands. Well, in those days, that was virtually a death sentence, not only from cannibals, but from the fevers that uh, were characteristic of <clears throat> that part of the world and for which uh, Western, uh, uh, British citizens had virtually no resistance. The way, to, the, way they, the church decided at their general assembly they were going to find which of them was going to go was uh, they basically distributed pieces of paper to all the delegates, the elders and ministers, and they were to put down three names of men they think would be effective missionaries in the South Seas. You can imagine the tension in the room because the idea was whichever name went to the surface that guy was going to the South Seas, even if it meant he'd be dead in six months. And um, as it happened, John Payton was in the gallery watching all of this unfold. But no name surfaced. No name was obviously the choice of the church. So Payton began to think, well, I'll go. And as soon as he suggested that he might be the one to go, everybody said, don't go, you'll, you'll be dead in six months. What are you thinking about here? And that wasn't the response that Peyton was expecting to receive, and so he went home. And his father said, remember, father is effectively 
very well thinking he'll never see his son again. He said, yeah, you absolutely have to go. He was this little farmer who's telling his son he needs to give his life to Christ in a way that almost certainly is going to result in terrible suffering and pain. And um, for, for John Payton, that was it. If his father said it was what he ought to do, then he knew this was what he ought to do, the kind of relationship that they had between father and son. Um, in any case, read those pages if you want to find out what real Christian parenting looks like and uh, be inspired to do more of it your own, yourself. Um, I want to finish, however, with one, one of the other problems that surrounds this particular doctrine of the Bible and of our theology. I published an article recently, again in Presbyterian, interacting with Paul's statement in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, that an elder must have believing children. Um, I never really thought deeply about that particular verse until in the course of life and life in the church, we had to face this particular question in regard to actual circumstances in our church, in our session. What does that mean? An elder must have believing children. Um, it sounds simple enough until you start asking the questions. Almost all of us would without thought accept the bachelor elder from that rule. If you're not married and you don't have children, that text does not apply to you. Though the Bible doesn't say that. We would also, almost all of us without thought, accept the man who became a Christian after his children were already raised. Say he's, he's 45 when he becomes a believer and he grows wonderfully in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and the church realizes he's a man who ought to be an elder, but he has three adult children, all of whom are unsaved because he didn't raise them as a Christian in a Christian home. We would almost certainly say that the text doesn't apply to him either, though the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, there are all manner of statements like that in the law whether in the Old Testament or the New, that we realize have to be applied ad hoc to the thousand and one different situations that we face in life, and that a simple repetition of the form of words found in the Bible is not sufficient to apply the law to all of those situations. So, what if a man has nine children and one who is not walking with the Lord? Is he... Is he, for that reason, disqualified from being an elder? What if a person has five children and one of them is not walking with the Lord? What if the person has three children and one of them is not walking with the Lord? But two of them are beautiful Christians and betray the nurture that they received at home in a most uh, beautiful and, and important way. 
how do you apply that particular text of Scripture? Remember, the Bible is often making um, legal statements in absolute terms. The only exception for divorce, or the only exception in which divorce is permitted, rather, is sexual infidelity, porneia. Our own Presbyterian Church in America has admitted there are other grounds for divorce, acceptable grounds for divorce, that are acceptable because they are like sexual infidelity in their capacity to destroy the marital covenant. We don't take that form of words as an absolute prohibition for any other uh, for any other ground of divorce. So attempted murder, in our case, would be an acceptable ground for divorce. Um, persistent uh, physical abuse would be a ground for divorce because like crimes have like, have like consequences. Our understanding is that the Bible obviously does not address every single situation that could possibly rise before us to deal with in the experience of life. So we apply the general principle to the specific cases. And what is our conclusion? What about the child? Is the child an apostate? Is the child a backslider? Is the child someone who has struggles with doubts? makes a difference. What are we talking about when we talk about the unbelieving child? How old is the child? What if the elder is um, a godly man who has been an elder for 40 years or 35 years and he has a son who is also an elder in the church who's in his 40s and he apostatizes when he becomes no longer a Christian does the 62, 63-year-old father immediately be disqualified from his role as an elder? Probably most of us would say, no, that isn't the point of the law. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible simply gives us the law and then gives us elders to apply the law to the thousand and one situations we face in life. So the question has to be answered a uh, man must have, in order to be an elder, a man must have believing children. The, the question has to be answered in keeping with the principles of biblical casuistry. So, what about a particular elder with a particular unbelieving child? Well, I think you could, you could imagine a situation in which all the elders together are just scratching their heads. They know enough about this man. They know enough about the way in which he's raised his children. They know enough about his believing kids and their heartbreak over the spiritual struggles of their brother or their sister. They know enough about that to know that they cannot point to some failure of nurture in the family, in the parents. It's been an ordered home. It's been a happy home. This is the Ecclesiastes effect. All sorts of things happen in life we could never predict and would never have imagined happening that throw us for a loop 
We can't, ex we can't understand them. We can't explain them. Elders have to face these sorts of considerations. On the other hand, they might also, all of them together, be more surprised that two of the children were believers rather than that one of them was not, knowing what they know about the family circle, about the way the father raised his children or failed to raise them. These are the sorts of decisions that have to be made. I'm saying this because we have elders in Tacoma with unbelieving children. And we knew we couldn't do what so many churches do with this particular situation, which is to say nothing about it to anybody, including even amongst themselves in the session. We addressed it. In fact, it was this that led to the, uh, to the article. We wanted to think this whole situation through, and we have elders with an unbelieving child. Every one of those elders also has children who are walking with the Lord and are, in fact, sterling believers. And we're comfortable with that situation in each case. We recognize that there may be cases in which we would not be comfortable with the man remaining as an elder. But in the two cases that I'm thinking about, we were very comfortable with the man remaining as an elder. This is one of the, thing, this is one of the places where the rubber meets the road with respect to this entire doctrine and, um, and the practice of nurture in the Christian home. The reason an elder must have believing children is because a godly man is expected to have believing children. And if you're not a godly man, then you're not qualified to be an elder in the church. In the same way that all the other qualifications that are laid down in, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, qualifications for the eldership, are all simply the characteristics of a godly man, the things we would expect any godly man to be. Every one of them, likewise, is a continuum. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Well, what exactly does that mean? If everybody... Every Christian man had a good reputation with outsiders. There'd be no martyrs. But we would never conclude that a man who died for his faith and obviously didn't have a good reputation with at least a good number of outsiders was disqualified from the eldership because there were people in the culture who thought him a bad man. In the same way, not everybody is equally hospitable. Not everyone is equally able uh, to... Um, to teach, not everyone is equally able to uh, um, maintain the other virtues that are listed there one after another. It's a continuum. So it is here, I think. And I wanted to mention it because in, as the leadership of the church, this is a question you will invariably face. You have little children, it's not a problem. But when the children become um, teenagers and then when they become er in their early 20s, this is going to happen um, at Christ Church, God forbid, but it's probably going to happen at one time or another, and uh, it, you need to have thought about it, and the congregation is going to need to know that you didn't just sweep this under the rug. You thought about this. You studied this out, 
you had lengthy conversations with the man and with one another about this. And the decision that was made was made in keeping with what you understand to be the teaching of the Word of God. That's my, that's my spiel. Comments or questions? Great. I left you with absolutely no questions about this whatsoever. <laughs> well, wonderful to be with you. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you.